Last week, we started Acts chapter 15 in our verse-by-verse teaching series. We're going through the book of Acts. And recently, Paul and Barnabas finished their first missionary journey, and they returned to their home base, Antioch in Syria, which at the time was the largest Gentile Christian community at this point. And so they take some time to share their stories with everybody. They get some much-needed rest in this city, of, at this church of Antioch. And unfortunately, and, and this is true for all of us, right? Times of rest don't last forever. Unfortunately, in this life, times of rest don't last forever. Times of peace don't last forever. We live in this broken world full of broken people, and until Jesus comes back and makes everything right, there's always going to be another conflict or problem around the corner. And this is a difficult truth for us to accept for everyone, especially for me. You know, I've been a lead pastor now since the end of 2022, coming up on three years. Isn't that crazy? How has this time gone by so fast? So it's really difficult for me as a new pastor. Ministry is going great, love it, but then there's always some kind of problem around the corner. And so I've had to kind of develop tough skin and get used to it. Like, all right, here we go again. We got this. We can do this. God's with me. And I think this is true uh, for everybody in life, you know? Life's good. Work's going well. And then, boom, car problems or trouble at work or some kind of injury or health issue or maybe there's an argument with a friend or family Maybe something expensive in your house breaks. That's the worst, isn't it? Life is good, and then, oh, why isn't the AC cooling me? Something like that. Maybe there's some kind of problem with one of your kids. I mean, kids are a great source of problems, aren't they? Forget who needs crossword puzzles or Sudoku, or if you like Wordle, forget it. Just get yourself a kid. Endless source of problems. (laughs) If you like problem solving, no, I'm just kidding, though. I I love my kids. I love them so much. But what I said is true. I mean, it it is very challenging raising kids, but they are also an incredible blessing. So much joy. In my house, my kids are either happy and laughing and amazing and cute and wonderful, or they're crying. It's kind of just one or two modes. There's no in-between. It's just either or. It's pretty great. Oh, thanks, Ron. Sorry, friends. Don't want to forget about you. Come here. Come along. So anyway, Paul and Barnabas experienced this, and their time of rest and peace came to an end. And we read this last week. Here's the problem that landed in their laps. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So as we briefly covered last week, this faction of Christians would later be known as the Judaizers. And Paul spends a lot of time in his letters, especially the letter to the Galatians. He's addressing false teachings from the Judaizers. And their primary false teaching was that all Gentile Christians needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. And this was not just like another minor, petty, you know, squabble about 
doctrines. This was about salvation. This was really big. This divisive issue was one of the biggest threats that the early church had encountered in their story so far. You know, we just barely scratched the surface on this circumcision issue last week, so I want to spend a little more time on this. Uh, Circumcision, very important for the Jews. The law of Moses was very clear on this. Every Jewish boy was to be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth, and this was a part of a divinely established covenant between God and Abraham. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 17. So God said to Abraham that circumcision for all Jewish males would be the sign of the covenant. And even non-Jewish males living in a Jewish household, they were to be circumcised, and this would set them all apart. And God even says to Abraham, any uncircumcised male shall be cut off from his people, excommunicated essentially, because he has broken God's covenant. So, wow, I mean, that's why this was such a big deal for these Jews in Judea. I think this helps us understand a little better, you know, how this this circumcision thing became such a big deal in the first century church. I mean, you've got Jews who have accepted Jesus and they became Christians, but they're having an identity crisis. Are we still Jews? Are we Jews or are we Christians or both? How does this work? You know, because there's now this whole load of Gentiles, non-Jews, in Antioch and beyond that are now Christians, but they're not Jews. They're not circumcised. Excuse me. Also, side note, the fact that God chose circumcision as the primary sign of of the covenant with Abraham, it's weird. (laughs) I think it's okay to say that. It's like for us today in the 21st century, this is weird. Like it's weird to to talk about circumcision and it's, it's in the Bible a lot. You know, it's, it's very strange to us in the modern world, and I think it's okay to acknowledge that. Like, this, this is weird. You know, but I am not one to question God Almighty, so I just teach the Word of God. I just accept that God is going to do what He wants to do. You know, and I am sure there have been in-depth studies where people are trying to figure out, okay, why did God choose circumcision as the sign of the covenant? And some scholars have explored theories and symbolism about overcoming sinful human flesh and you know maybe it was a precursor to the sacrifice of flesh that Jesus would give on the cross some scholars wonder if circumcision was simply this god-ordained alternative to some of the corrupt pagan body mutilation rituals from other cultures around Israel in the ancient near east you know whatever the case i am just going to accept god chose circumcision for the Israelites. It's good enough for me. I don't really have a desire to do more research (coughs) on that. Although, if anyone here feels particularly motivated to do some research on that, uh, let me know. You know, give me a primer on your research. Let me know what you find. I think circumcision is just one of those very strange things that Christians talk about sometimes, which can be a little odd for people who are new to the church. I mean, among that, we also talk about blood a lot, and and we kind of get used to it, but like we talk about blood a lot in the church, you know, uh, being washed in blood, being covered in some guy's blood, you know, we talk about eating the body and drinking the blood of Jesus, and once it's explained, once the symbolism is explained, you know, it makes sense, and and people get it, but you know, (coughs) 
excuse me. There are some people who are unfamiliar with Christianity that can get very confused. Like, why are they talking about blood so much? What is all this about blood? Are they cannibals? Like, this is weird. And, and if you walk into some sanctuaries, like especially Catholic churches or, or liturgical Protestant churches, you might see this huge crucifix statue hanging from the ceiling above the altar. Oh, thank you. Stay hydrated, everybody. And I've actually had some people tell me, like, why in the Catholic Church do they have this dude hanging from the ceiling covered in blood? And, and you have to explain to people, you know, like, once you explain, like, well, that's Jesus, he's hanging on the cross, and that is a reminder for us of what he did for us. You know, the salvation that is available, the forgiveness that is available for us. But, I mean, if you're unfamiliar with Christianity, you, you just see these very interestingly detailed, violent imagery in some churches. Definitely not rated G, right? It's not rated G. But when it's explained, the meaning of this incredible sacrifice, it, it makes sense. It's moving. It's powerful. It's beautiful. Some people have wondered, like, why do Christians wear crosses, which is, for centuries has been this symbol of death? People would hang on crosses. People would die. Crucifixion is gruesome and horrible, and yet Christians are wearing this death symbol, you know, and that confuses people. But we have to explain, like, Jesus took this death symbol and turned it into a symbol of life and hope and salvation, which is really cool. So hopefully we can understand circumcision in the same way. It, it plays an important role in the history of, of the, the story of God's people it was the mark of the old Abrahamic covenant. And this is a very important distinction I want to make today. It is not the mark of the new covenant in Jesus. I don't know if there's confusion about that. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, everything changed. The spiritual significance of circumcision ended in that moment when the new covenant with Jesus began. And the mark of the covenant for Christians today is simply just believing in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That's it. No circumcision required. You know, we, we do have baptism as an outward sign. We do have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as an additional sign. Circumcision is not required for Christians today. It really has no spiritual significance whatsoever for Christians today. If you take an honest look at the Bible and what we read in the New Testament. So it really doesn't matter if a Christian boy is circumcised or not. That was old covenant stuff. That was fulfilled in Jesus. So today, really, the only thing that parents have to be concerned with is like, okay, what is family preference? What is tradition? What are the medical opinions out there, which are actually varied greatly? And there's pros and cons on either side, depending on who you ask. So I just want to make that clear. Circumcision definitely has no impact whatsoever on our faith, on our salvation in Jesus Christ today. And Paul actually makes this very clear in his letters. Here's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. 
And here's Galatians 2.16. Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, which included circumcision, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And then in Romans chapter 2, Paul writes about a spiritual circumcision of the heart. He's changing the language. Not a physical circumcision, a circumcision of the heart, not the flesh. And then in his letter in Philippians, Paul is just ruthless in his rebuke of the Judaizers that were trying to impose circumcision on these Gentile believers. He said, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Like, wow, Paul, hold on, dude. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Strong rebuke from Paul. You know, and this letter to the Philippians was actually written 15 years after what we're reading about today in the book of Acts. So it's been 15 years Paul has been battling these people that the Judaizers that have been insisting that Christians need to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses, 15 years. So I think we have a little bit of grace and understand why Paul was so harsh here. He is just tired of telling these people the same thing We are saved by grace, through faith, not by works, not in the flesh. It is a spiritual transformation. Anyway, let's get back to Acts 15. So let's see what Paul and Barnabas are going to do about these Judaizers that have come from Judea all the way to Antioch to try to tell people what they're supposed to do. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So they're going to run it up the flagpole and see what the bigwigs in in Jerusalem think. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. So there's a contrast here. You've got the Judaizers in Jerusalem that are like, mm, these Gentile Christians aren't following the law of Moses. And then you've got people in Phoenicia and Samaria that are like, this is awesome. There's Christians in Antioch now. That's amazing. So very big contrast here between these two groups. Let's read on. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Oh boy. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. So Paul and Barnabas head to Jerusalem to see the bigwigs. There is this gathering of apostles and elders. It is time to bring this before the committee. Let's, let's settle this once and for all. And again, this is not just an, an agree-to-disagree type of issue. This is a major foundational theological question about salvation. This has to be established. There needs to be agreement on this. So some of the believers who belonged to the party of Pharisees, they agreed with the Judaizers. And it's amazing to me. It's like, yeah, that there were Pharisees that became Christians. That blows my mind. Like, that's a miracle. Because all through the Gospels, 
we see that the Pharisees were these long-standing enemies of Jesus, constantly opposing him, trying to get him killed. So most Pharisees completely rejected Jesus. Pharisees were, were known for being very legalistic in regards to applying the law of Moses and imposing it on the common people. They were kind of policing people. They were just brutal in their condemnation of other people for not following the law of Moses. And then, of course, they had hundreds of additional laws. They would interpret the laws of Moses and, and add lots of extra details about how these laws were supposed to be followed. And it was just extremely legalistic and impossible for anybody to follow. So the Pharisees were not very well liked at all. Most were very self-righteous and they were mean. They were mean-spirited. And if you read through the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus has more than just a few strong words against the Pharisees. So it's just amazing to me that here in this council of elders, there are Pharisees that became Christians. And what that tells us is the Holy Spirit can draw even the hardest of hearts to Jesus. God can draw anyone unto himself. If even a Pharisee can accept Jesus, anybody, anybody can accept Jesus. You know, I was reading about Christians that were going to pray outside the building where this like satanic conference was happening, like Satanism. And uh, even though, according to their official documents, um, this group of, uh, this formal group, Satanism, it's, they don't actually believe in Satan. They don't believe in spiritual things. They're atheists. But a lot of them just kind of take on this imagery of, of satanic things as a mockery because they like the symbolism of it and the rebellion. Um, but you've got Christians that are praying outside of this Satan con thing that's going on. And there are people that are coming to know Jesus because of this. So like God can, can draw anyone to himself. God can soften even the hardest of hearts, which is really cool. So the apostles and elders of the church in Jerusalem, and this is where it all started in Jerusalem, right? That day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, this was the beginning of the early church. So this is, this is home base for Christianity right now. All the bigwigs are, are meeting, and, and so Peter stands up, and he has something to say. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Boom, mic drop. I mean, Peter, it, this is such an epic moment. I'm pretty sure after this, he just stretches out his hands and starts shooting fire from his fingers. No, that didn't happen, but it would be very fitting. This was a really big deal. 
Peter, who is the primary leader among the apostles and this church in Jerusalem, which was primarily Jewish, Peter just dropped a bomb here. I mean, he says God made a choice. God made a choice. God made this choice already for us. And he's referring to the vision he had in Acts chapter 10 when the Holy Spirit came on these Gentiles who were not circumcised. They were not following the law, right? So he says, why test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor ancestors have been able to bear? It is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. Their hearts have been purified by faith. And this is incredible. So this is not just talking about Gentiles. Peter's talking about Jews and Gentiles. He's saying for all of us, the law does not save. It is faith in Jesus. So Peter's really turning the page here from Old Testament to New Testament. Old Covenant to New Covenant. This is the end of an era. This Old Covenant approach to, to the law of Moses, which has been a burden for people for centuries, it is finally being lifted in this moment. It really happened at the cross, but this is where we're starting to see the change in the culture of the church. Jesus has given Peter and these apostles and these elders new eyes through which to see the law of Moses. And this is also revealed in the New Testament writings that we have in our Bible today. But let's read on. Verse 12. Lots of text here, so stick with me. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished... James spoke up. This is James, the brother of Jesus. James, the author of the book, James, in the New Testament. James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, which is Simon Peter, Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. Wow. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So now we've got all the major leaders in the early church have spoken. Peter, the leader among the 12 disciples. We've got Paul and Barnabas, which have become an authority among the Gentiles. They are this first missionary pair being sent to the Gentiles. And now James, the brother of Jesus, who had become very influential among the Christian Jews in Jerusalem, especially the traditional Jews. James was their guy. So all these influential leaders, they're in favor of not imposing Old Testament law on these new Gentile believers. And what does James do? He actually looks to scripture. He cites the prophet Amos. 
It's in the Hebrew scripture. Amos clearly prophesied that all people would be able to seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles. It is just clear, plain as day, in this prophecy from Amos. So for centuries, this truth has been hiding in plain sight. It's probably been read in in synagogues. In the Hebrew Scriptures, it says God would make a way for both Jews and Gentiles. And then James says, well, let's write to these new Gentile Christians and tell them to abstain from food polluted by idols, sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. So some of these make sense. Like, why would anyone want to just eat or drink blood? That's weird. Um, Sexual immorality obviously makes a lot of sense. The Hebrews had a moral code when it came to sexual ethics and morality that was detailed in Leviticus and in much of the Old Testament. So anytime in the New Testament when it says flee sexual immorality, it's talking about this Hebrew moral code that all of the, the Jews and the Christians in the first century would have been familiar with. And these instructions also include some some things that would just make it easier for Gentile Christians to relate to the Jews. Because if you ate blood or food polluted by idols or the meat of strangled animals, those would make you unclean, according to Jewish law. And so James is basically saying, like, please don't do these things, and then we can make it easier for the church to be unified. So then the people that are still following the law won't feel weird or have a problem being around a Gentile because they know they've not had blood or food polluted by idols or food from strangled animals, etc. So this is really, in a, this is not an attempt to try and pick and choose some Old Testament law that needs to still be relevant for them. It's really just like, hey, this would make it a lot easier on everybody. We could all get along better if you guys did these four things. And I think it's really important to note that Paul, Barnabas, Peter, James, they're not telling Jewish Christians to forsake the law. That's not really the drive of this conversation. Although, based on this theology that's, that's being put down, that I think there were over the centuries Jewish Christians that did over time um, change the way they lived. They, I think they accepted more freedom from the impositions of Old Testament law. But there were still many Jewish Christians that continued to follow the law as much as they could. That's, that's how they related to their God. That's how they grew up. Even though it's Old Covenant, it was still very important to them. And today there are still Messianic Jews that follow all of the Old Testament law to the T. And that's a part of their faith, and that's fine, and that's okay. As long as we understand that there is no salvation in the law of Moses, there is salvation only in Christ. Let's read a little more. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Saul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. And it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. I love that verse. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. It's very simple. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. <laughs> you know, and so this plan to, to squash this false teaching from the Judaizers, it was underway. And it's so clear as we read this, like the Holy Spirit was at work here. Because how often can you get a large group of Christians together to debate a divisive issue like this and actually come to a peaceful solution, right? Like almost never. <laughs> the sad reality of, of our world today. So clearly the Holy Spirit was at work. So I just love this example of the body of Christ functioning as it should, working together to solve problems, and problems do inevitably come and they were working together in the peace and harmony of the Holy Spirit.